reckless. Maybe you three to five-year-olds are thinking, hey, I want to learn about that. Maybe you are uh, 30 to 50, and you're thinking, hey, I'd really like to know about this. How can God be jealous? Well, uh, if you desire an answer, I want you to go and learn. I'm not going to teach you about that this morning. Uh, you, can, you can talk about that later. That would be a great conversation for your life group. Um, also, for Pastor Tim, he would love to answer that question. It's, it's not that difficult, but, uh, but it's a really good one. So God is jealous. Um, hey, and I, we, we regularly want to be keeping the children before, uh, before you guys. Remember this, that um, it is the job of parents to raise children. And God has given you exactly what you need to do that work. And part of the thing that he's given to you is the church to help you. And so we're not going to take your children and in some way do a miracle over them. I mean, I'm, I'm not a miracle worker. Uh, this is not a salvation show, although I, I like that song. Um, but uh, I'm not a miracle worker. But the Word of God works miracles by the, by the power of the Spirit of God. And we, working together, uh, we believe that God is going to raise your children up to know and love him if you'll be faithful. And so be asking those kids. You know, if you have a question, you could ask Pastor Tim after service today. But, or you could just find some three-, four-, or five-year-old and ask them what it means that God is jealous. If you have your, your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at a couple verses this morning. Finishing out the, the chapter, Mark chapter 9. And as you do, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I get the, the privilege to bring the word of God to you this morning to, to bring some exposition to this text. I want to make sure that you know that you're welcome here. We're glad to, to be worshiping with you this morning. And um, as you turn, I want to ask you a few questions. We're going to play a game. Maybe you know this about me. I'm not sure if you do or not, but I was a youth pastor for some time. Some of you are like, oh, that explains a lot. Were you also dropped as a child? Uh, well, I don't know about that, but I can speak to the fact that I was a youth pastor. And uh, lots of times I would find different ways to, to uh, draw the, the teenagers in and, and work some kind of a application there, even in the introduction. But I'm going to try to exercise those gifts or strengths that I used to have and see if I still got them. Uh, let me, we're going to do it by playing a game. It's a game called Would You Rather? And I, you know, I don't really know if, how, we're gonna, how this is going to work out, but I'll go ahead and throw it out there. Let's play Would You Rather. Would you rather go into the past and meet your ancestors or go into the future and meet your great-grandchildren? I'm not going to make any application to this from the text. This is totally random. But which would you rather? Would you rather go into the past and meet your ancestors or go into the future and meet your great-great-grandchildren. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Okay. I hear some future out there. Anybody, anybody want to go into the past? Okay, we've got a couple past. All right. Nope. That's a, it's a gamble for sure. Number two. We're going to have a couple of these. Number two. Would you rather have more time or more money? time okay is, is it can I say that there's no right or wrong answers I don't know would you rather have a man but the end of that way is death there is a way that seems right to a man but the end of that way is death each and every one of us of this text to your life how many of us want to end 
but the way of death. Here in this life and truly have it end with death. Separation from our friends and family, separation from this world, and separation from God in one sense. There's a warning here. And without this warning, it would not be so obvious because there's a way that seems right to us. And if we're not careful, we'll take that way and it will lead to death. As we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see a couple observations that I'm going to draw your attention to. The two big ones are going to be this, that there is a seriousness of sin. There's a seriousness of sin. This is a heavy, heavy passage. And for all of us here, we need to see that no matter what stage of life you're in, whether it's considering stealing Legos from your friend or stealing taxes from the government, there is a seriousness of sin that God doesn't wink at and he doesn't look the other way. Furthermore, we're going to see that there's a reality of hell. That hell is, in fact, a reality. As we work through this this morning, We'll pray that God will bless. So verse 42, let's look back to there, and we'll begin to just work through chronologically here. Verse 42, Jesus says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. Now, I want you to just remember the setting for Jesus talking here. He, once again, he's left the Mount of Transfiguration, he's heading towards Jerusalem, and all along the way, they find themselves in Capernaum. This is Jesus' basically uh, headquarters here, possibly in one of Peter's family members' house, houses there, and they're meeting. Jesus takes up a child in his arms, a little one, and he says, Verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is a bit of the greater context. But then the conversation at some point turns to this unnamed exorcist. We looked at that last week, and Jesus warns John not to stop this unnamed exorcist from working for Jesus and, and working towards in Jesus' name. John, that, that is his job. He's working for me. And now Jesus turns and he warns the disciples about causing a little one to sin. And really what's happening here is Jesus is speaking to the 12 disciples and he, when he refers to the little ones, he's not just talking about little children like the one he took up in his arms. He's also speaking of the unnamed exorcist. He's ultimately speaking of anybody that places their faith in Jesus and they are lesser in strength, lesser in experience than these super apostles said tongue-in-cheek. They're not to pressure people to stop acting in Jesus' name unless there's a good reason to do it. They're not to, to, to hinder folks from being discipled. These little ones. I want you to stop and think about the little ones that God has placed in your life. No, you're not, you're not an apostle. You're not one of the 12. But I think we can still take a pause here and just ask this question. Who are the little ones in your life? Maybe that's not a difficult answer for you. Maybe you've got some little ones and they're crumpling papers and they're playing with Legos and they're fighting and elbowing and things like that even right now as we speak. If that's the case for you, then good. It's easy for you to see. These are some little ones that Jesus is speaking about in your life. So we should be paying attention, right, if that's you. Furthermore, I think I would argue that each and every one of us, 
have little ones around us, little ones in the faith who are watching and paying attention, even though you may not even be aware. Maybe you say, well, I'm not so sure that that's possible. I'm not married. I don't have any children. Uh, Are there really little ones around me? Absolutely. And they're watching every move that you make. And Jesus is warning us. This warning, maybe if you hear that, you're thinking, oh, I should sit up straighter right now. I should pay attention. I should be walking circumspectly and thinking, who's watching me when I do this? Who's watching me when I do that? And what effect will this action or this word have on those little ones gathered around me? He warns against hindering. He warns against destroying the faith, particularly of this exorcist, but then applies it to little ones. Any regular, ordinary disciple of Jesus Christ, what effect are you having on them? And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, and that word to sin, it, it's, not, it's not really complicated, but we kind of make it complicated when we think, well, all words in the, in the Greek language that translate into English as sin are all the same, and that's actually not the case. This particular word uh, to sin is, could actually be translated to cause to stumble. To cause to stumble. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble in relation to God's commands. It's going to be helpful for you to keep in mind. It kind of has this sense of finality. Whoever finally and ultimately causes in some form or fashion one of Jesus' disciples to stumble away, again, with a sense of, of finality, ultimately, this warning then would be against him. It would be upon him. And the idea would be to cause the stumble, as in they just don't believe anymore. Or they've been encouraged to sin in some way that is against God's commands. Causing them to fall away is the sense that the Bible is talking about. And so there's a warning to each and every one of us to be careful of the little ones that are around us, even this morning and throughout our week and throughout our, our day, considering are there things that we're doing or not doing? Are there things that we're saying or not saying that would cause someone around us, some little one, to fall away? Do you realize this morning that there are things that you can do, the things that you cannot do or shouldn't do that would cause another person in your life, in some sense, to fall away from God? Do you realize that? Now, I'm not trying to undo the sovereignty of God. But from this text and others, we can see that there is a real consequence to the actions that we commit. And that you, in some sense, can cause others to fall away from God. We spend a lot of time as Christians thinking of of the right way to say certain things that would help lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ. We do that all the time. Maybe we just think about it and we don't actually do it. But in our minds, we're thinking, oh, when, when my waitress said this thing, I could have slipped in a Jesus juke right there that would have maybe segued into the gospel and I could have talked about this thing that happened. And, or maybe when you're talking with a coworker, you're like, oh, this bad thing's happening. Did you hear about it in the, in the Herald? Which, by the way, is a newspaper if you don't know about that. Maybe you read something in the newspaper and they're like, 
your friend comments and says, man, the world's just a broken place. And you're like, man, this would have been a great opportunity to share the gospel. Maybe you even do that. And I would encourage you to do so. But what I've found in my own life is I'll spend more time thinking about ways that I could talk about the gospel and spend less time thinking about ways and things that I say and the ways that I act that would lead someone away from the faith. Of course, these two things must happen in tandem. They must happen together. Not only should we speak clearly about the gospel with hope, but additionally, we should live in a way that is in accordance with that. Anyway, remember this. Your actions have consequences. Your words have consequences. Your posts have consequences. Consequences. Your demeanor can have these same types of consequences. This, no, this passage, no doubt, is a, is a warning against sinning against children in some abusive or sexually immoral way, but the warning doesn't stop there. Those who are weaker in the faith that are walking around you, walking even with you, we've got to be careful. How does Jesus feel about those who would sin against little ones? I can tell you it's not good. It would be better, Jesus says, for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and him cast into the sea. And that is a graphic, vivid, painful, terrifying image that Jesus gives to us. I'm told that there are basically two types of millstones. I don't know. I don't do a whole lot of milling. But there's two types of millstones in the Bible. You've got the little ones and you've got the big ones, right? You've got the small ones and you've got the great ones. The great ones uh, are, well, they're bigger than the little ones or the, the smaller ones. The smaller ones are like the household version, one that maybe the, 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 the mother would, would use on a regular basis to grind up some, some meal in her home. Enough for maybe for the day, maybe she'd grind late at night and make the bread or whatever it is, and it'd be rising overnight and she'd bake it in the morning for breakfast. I don't, I don't really know. Maybe she'd pack the lunch with using that small millstone. But then there's a great millstone. And the great millstone was the kind that you'd see down at the bakery. You'd see down at the mill. And this one would weigh thousands of pounds, carved out of solid stone, similar to an olive press. These large stones weighing upwards and over a thousand pounds would grind and crush the meal. And having one of those wrapped around your neck, not the little one, the big one, having one of those wrapped around your neck would be intense. Marathon swimming is one thing. By the way, marathon, that sounds crazy, right? Running a long distance, that sounds, that's incredible. But swimming a long distance as well, that's crazy. Treading water for long periods of time. Maybe you've had to like, uh, be verified in some way as a lifesaver. Maybe in the military you've had to tread, periods or, or tread water for long periods of time. Yet still, swimming with this type of weight is not only not recommended, it is impossible. Likely a human being having 40 to 50 pounds of extra dead solid weight that doesn't float at all would kill you. But this thing, this great millstone is overkill, pun intended. 
And Jesus is trying to demonstrate, he's not trying, he's succeeding in demonstrating that this is a bad thing. You do not want to have a great millstone attached around your neck. And he said, it would be better, you would actually prefer, would you rather harm a little one or have the millstone? And Jesus is saying, listen, if you truly knew, you would want the millstone. Attached to your neck, it would drag you to the bottom of the ocean floor in seconds. In situations like this, if the lack of oxygen didn't kill you, the water pressure soon would. The weight attached to a person's neck would prevent his corpse from rising to the surface. It couldn't be reburied, it couldn't be buried, it couldn't be recovered, which is a huge deal, especially in Jesus' time. You need to get that body back. You need to get it buried. That's important. That's a good thing. So adding to all of this, Jesus is saying that your body wouldn't even be able to be recovered. Do you feel the weight of this? And Jesus warns that if people who think they're better than others, Christians even, disciples who think that they have more knowledge or they're puffed up with their own status within the church or within the, the following of Christ here in this particular time, and they're arrogant, they would maybe end up causing simple Christians to stumble to fall away from their faith, to sin against God, to abandon the calling that God has placed on their lives, and they thereby would open themselves up to great punishment, to great chastisement from the Lord. This person that would hinder little ones, he goes through life, she goes through life with little regard to those around them. They're so focused on their own needs, they're so focused on their own wants, whether they be somehow righteous or not somehow good intrinsically. They focus so much on their own reward they intentionally or even accidentally would damage another believer. Shifting gears a little bit, what's the best car chase you've ever seen? The best car chase you've ever seen. There's lots of good ones out there, and we probably could spend some time debating as to why this one's better than that one. But everybody loves a good car chase, don't we? It's exhilarating. You're like, is he going to get caught? Is she going to get caught? Are they going to get away? Are they going to go back to jail? I mean, they're, they're, they're innocent. They need to prove it. They need to escape. Justice needs to be done, right? And so we watch as the, the cars all pile up, maybe on the highway, and he shoots off the highway. And he, I mean, almost always they're going you know, off jumps and they're going through markets. Like, who even has markets anywhere? Like, but you're going to have an outdoor market wherever there's a car scene and like, baskets are going to be flying and apples and oranges are going to be hitting the sides of the walls and exploding. And they're going to go down alleyways and go down steps and all this stuff. And there's civilians everywhere. You're, if you're watching that movie and you're, you're excited and you've not had any kids, you're like, that's awesome. And then you start to have kids and you're like, that's terrible. Like, how many people are going to get wounded if that really happened? How many people are, I mean, like, you never see it in the movies. Like, wow, that guy, like, he escaped. But uh, sadly, 15 people were flattened and 30 were, were sent to the hospital. We don't think about that. I think that's what kind of what Jesus is getting at right here. Oh, there's all kinds of amazing jumps flying through the air. It was tremendous. They finally escaped. What about all this collateral damage? You focus so much on clearing your own name and getting out of the grip of the evil police or whoever it is, the bad guy, the mercenary, like a bull in a china shop, you 
focused on your own issues, your own needs, your own personal desires, again, whether they be thought of as righteous or not, and you had no care for the collateral damage. And you say, in Christ I have liberty. I have freedom. I should be able to do whatever I want to do. Don't tread on my rights. Jesus looks at the little ones and looks at you, and he says, don't tread on my little ones. And so the warning goes out to us. Are we so concerned about our own experience that we say, whatever with the little ones, whatever happens to them, again, it's not just children, but weaker ones in the faith around us who need discipling, who need faithful admonition and encouragement and teaching. Jesus says, don't tread on them. And your actions have consequences. But you say, I'm a famous Christian apostle I'm a renowned Christian apologist. But when your Christian liberty allows you to trample on the lives of others, it has ceased to be Christian and has become godless. And it'd be better that you had a millstone attached to your neck. Christian liberty is not a personal matter. It is a joint matter, one that all Christians are to share in. It's not a license to live for ourselves, but it's a call to live for God and to die for others. To die to our own desires, our own prestige, our own renown, our own fame. Jesus says, die to those things and live for others. Die to those things and live for God. If the local church is the body of Christ, then our Christian liberty must be exercised and implemented in a way that cares for the other members of the body, even the little ones. Yes, you now have freedom. You have freedom to lay down your rights. You have freedom to lay down your privileges for the sake of others. You have that liberty, and that's what Jesus is speaking of here. He's warning, be careful as you live out your faith not to crush or hinder the faith of those around you. And if you view your own needs as more important than others, you will without a doubt be guilty of harming the little ones that are around you. As a church, as a group of Christians committed to one another, we have to be careful about what we do and what we don't do. The Bible has this idea of walking circumspectly, and being careful, and not living in fear. Of course, we're not to do that, but we're to pay attention and say, I don't want to hurt brothers and sisters. I don't want to harm the name of God, and so as I walk through life, I'm going to walk in a way that is not careless, but a way that is thoughtful, a way that builds up and not in a way that tears down. And so I asked a few moments ago, moments ago, to ask the Lord, for you to ask the Lord, who in your life would be considered a little one around you? Hopefully he was able to, to point out that person or those persons in your life. And now I encourage you to ask that God would give you wisdom to see where, if any, are there instances of you and somehow harming little ones around you. I pray that God would reveal that to you and that he would strengthen our church as we walk circumspectly in love and in humility. Verse 42 is about causing someone else to stumble. 
verses 43 to 48 are about causing yourself to stumble. So let's look back at this text. Serious. We have to be careful not to sin against those around us, but we also need to be careful about sinning against ourselves. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with, than with two hands go into hell to the unquenchable fire. I told you there'd be a couple observations, and it's not as linear as I'd hope or clean as I hope, but these we'll see here in this verse the seriousness of sin, as we did in, this, in the previous verse 42. We begin to see even more, even more clearly the seriousness of sin. Throughout history, including history that's recorded in the Bible, cutting off parts of the hands or feet or gouging out eyes was a, a punitive action that would be taken against an enemy or a criminal. Just as an exercise, maybe you can think with me of some stories in the Bible where somebody had some appendage removed as punishment or as a, some way to, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, to correct an enemy or, or mitigate a threat. You think of any? Think of Samuel, or uh, not Samuel, but Samson, rather. Maybe you read that this past week. Or maybe it was two weeks ago. Samson finally captured by his enemies. What did they do to him? This strong man. They've now been able to, to defeat him. They take out his eyes. The act of an enemy against their foe. But there's others. One king capturing another, removing toes and big toes and thumbs. Not a threat anymore. Demonstrates dominance and consequences. The Greeks in those days, they thought of the body as being evil. And that there was some kind of always wrestling between the, the, the physical and the spiritual. And that they were oil and water and didn't mix in some way. And that one was good and one was evil intrinsically. And yet Judaism and Christianity, they actually, we actually, we view the body as a gift from God. It's a it's a thing that God has given to us that we should be grateful for, but we should also use to praise him with. And that's not just the way that the, the Jews and Christians in this first century were thinking of the body. That's also how we should think of the body as well. That each part of the physical body is good. Each appendage, and it is good, and it is given from God. But here in this passage, Jesus seems to be encouraging the opposite and saying, hey, you might want to watch out. You might want to look at your... Your, uh, your, your hand or your foot with cynicism and fear. He seems to be here advocating that one would remove his hand if it were necessary, if it caused you to sin. And the hand here stands as a symbol for the things that a person does. Things like holding a newborn. Things like opening a door. Things like brushing your teeth stands for things like taking something that doesn't belong to you or harming somebody with a knife or pulling a trigger when a person is on the other end. What Jesus is saying here is, at the end of your life, if you are damned to hell because you would not turn from committing some certain sin with your hand, then it would have been better for you to have cut your hand off and have lived your life without it. Jesus wants us to see the seriousness of our sin. 
If you leave this life thinking, or I'm sorry, if you leave this room this morning thinking that amputation is, is a spiritual discipline like Bible reading or meditation or whatever, uh, then, then I feel, because that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, hey, today when you, are get, when you get up in the morning, you should you know, read a passage of Scripture, spend some time in prayer, go and meditate a little bit, and then cut off your pinky finger. That's not what he's saying. Jesus doesn't want you to cut off your hand, but he is calling for you to cease and desist when it comes to sinful activities that are associated with the hand. He wants you to see the seriousness of sin, knowing that this, that eternal life is at stake. He wants you to see and know what you are really, truly dealing with. By the way, when, when you think about not having a hand, don't think about like 21st century, like, eh, I can get by. I mean, maybe you've have a family member, or maybe you've even experienced the, 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 in a, the, on, in the you know, maybe a limp hand or foot. Maybe a blind eye, and you think, you know, it's tough. You'd rather have it, but, you know, you can get by. Don't think about that. Think first century. Criminals were missing hands. Just appearance-wise, not having a hand in that day, you, you might as well have something tattooed on your head that says, I'm a, I'm a killer or I'm a, I'm a thief. Beggars were missing hands. Those who couldn't provide for their families were missing appendages, unable to work, unable to care for themselves, unable to care for their family members. In those days, there's no robotic or robotic replacement or lifelike prosthetic. To lose a limb in Jesus' day was almost as sure as a life sentence. And Jesus still, in the face of all that, is saying, hey, it would be better for you to lose a hand and receive the life sentence than it would be for you to go into hell. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but that's saying something, isn't it? That's saying something about hell. But first it's saying that sin is serious. And all sin is serious. Making it more personal, your sin is serious. The sin that you commit against God, whether I think it big or little, irrelevant. Whether the culture around us says it's big or little, irrelevant. What does God say? God says it's evil. God says it's serious. God says Jesus himself says it would be better for you to cut your own hand off. Sin is serious. When we've been sinned against, when somebody has hurt us, when they've broken the law, when they've broken God's law, one of the most comforting things that we can ponder on is what? That God will judge them. That justice will be served. Whether it be in this life or the next, God will serve justice. That's comforting, isn't it? Isn't it? And yet that sword cuts both ways, doesn't it? Not only will those who sin against us be punished, will they also receive justice? So will you. All your sins will be punished. They will all be given justice, even the little ones. So what are we to do? That sounds like bad news, and it is. What are we to do with that? What are we to do if we're somebody that has not taken sin seriously? What are we to do if we find ourselves as the one who has sinned against the little ones in our lives? 
these sins that incur the wrath of God. We're to turn to Jesus Christ. Whether it be a little one or a big one, by our estimation, 1 John 1.9 is still true. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins. To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you either turn to Jesus in desperation, begging that he forgive you of your sins and keep you from continuing to sin, or you will enter into hell. Jesus is saying getting rid of one's hand, getting rid of one's foot and eye, they're all uh, meant to, to warn people that there is no sin worth going to hell over. There is no addiction. There is no vice that's worth it. In this day and age, when statements about hell are made in a serious manner, there, there's almost like a, a quiet laugh that echoes through your mind. Maybe not yours. Maybe you just perceive it in others. It's almost as if in this day and age that hell has been like, put on the same shelf as like, you know, fear-mongering as a trick to uh, teach your children to obey and do what's right. Similar to maybe like, hey, Santa's watching you. You don't want coal. I can assure you this morning that Jesus gives no intimation of this. Jesus does not look at sin, talk about hell, and wink with his eye. No, he doesn't do that. He speaks clearly about hell, and he speaks clearly about sin. About sin, he says it's serious. And about hell, he says it's real. The word translated here as hell is Gehenna. Gehenna is a transliteration of two Hebrew words. Coming together, it just means the valley of Hinnom. At one point, that valley on the southwest side of Jerusalem had been used as a place of human sacrifice, even in Jewish history. Moving forward, though, it was basically a dump. Dead bodies, trash, refuse of any sort, sewage, all placed there from this bustling city. And what would they do as the days, months, and years would go on? How would they get rid of all that stuff? Well, they'd gather up all the aerosol cans, and they'd light it on, get it out of the way, and then they'd light what was left on fire, right? They'd burn it all. And so this valley of Hinnom, or this Gehenna, was a landfill always burning, always on fire. It smelled terrible. And you could always see from certain angles those fires burning. And what happened is that throughout Jewish history, Gehenna had become a symbol of the place of death. It had become a symbol of divine punishment. And like Gehenna, God would punish his enemies with fire and destruction. This passage here, as Jesus speaks, he tells us three things about hell. And I would argue that the main point of this passage or this discourse is not that hell exists. And yet it's still a product. When we get down hearing Jesus speak, we know three things about hell. One, that it has an unquenchable fire. That it has an unquenchable fire. This fire does not go out. And that's interesting. You know, it was said of Gehenna that the fire never goes out. The fire there in Gehenna, in that landfill, in that dump, was always burning. And yet, that fire is not burning today. That fire has gone out. 
And it was thought of that fire that it would burn forever. And yet the physical fire has gone out in the spiritual fire of Gehenna. That place that God will use to destroy his enemies will never go out. It will never be extinguished. It's an unquenchable fire. Another thing that we notice about this text as a result of Jesus speaking candidly about it is that people are cast into it. That people are actually cast into it. Uh, since entering life and entering the kingdom, these, both of these are, are contrasted with being cast into Gehenna. It tells us that it points to that this is a future judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, what? The judgment. And those who are seen as righteous, according to the work of Jesus on the cross, have turned from their sin and placed their faith in him. They will will be welcomed into eternity with God, into peace, eternal restoration with the Father. And yet those who remain enemies, their judgment will come as well. Jesus quoting Matthew or Isaiah 66, he, he, he speaks about the destruction of God's enemies. In Isaiah 66, verse 24, he says this, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against God. For their worm shall not die, their their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. They shall continue to be an abhorrence to all flesh. And this is a terrible reality. Not a whole lot of amens or hallelujahs or celebrations this morning. Not not in this point in time. And I think that this would help to clear up this idea that people land themselves in hell as if God stays awake all night losing sleep over the fact that hell exists. As if he's scrambling to find a way to destroy hell and to eliminate it. That's not true. Friends, it's not true. Hell is a place that has been created by God, and with it, he will punish his enemies. That's a reality. And as such, we, we, we shouldn't make light of hell. I, I would argue that per, perhaps the worst, most foolish four-letter word for you to use in your day-to-day would be a word that belittles the thing that God said he is going to use to destroy his enemies. Don't do that. Let's not mock what God has set aside and said, this will be the punishment of those who turn and rebel against me. And there's nothing on earth that can be compared to hell. It's been said that war is like hell or that marriage was like hell or whatever. And those things, I've not experienced a a bad marriage and I've not experienced war But I know that those things are not hell, nor are they to be compared with it. Because hell is a place that does not end. It is a place that is unquenchable. And it is a place that God sends people, those who are his enemies. Furthermore, we see this morning that the worm doesn't die. Look at verse 48. The worm doesn't die. 
the worm and also fire, these are really symbols of destruction. I'm not saying they're not real, but they symbolize destruction. They're never-ending forces. They'll never stop. They'll never give up. There is no end to that retribution. It's an eternal God exacting eternal justice. The worm doesn't die. And yet on the other end, entering life means entering God's kingdom. It speaks to God declaring you righteous and welcoming you into his presence. Look at verse 45. It says, and if your foot causes you to sin, now we're turning from the hand to the foot. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Really, the, if the hand serves as a metaphor for all the evil things and sins that we commit with our hands against God, the foot is of all the evil places that we would go. We would go to commit some sort of sinful act or some improper place, allowing yourself to be in a certain position that you know it's provision for the flesh. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Again, the eye is likely symbolic for the the lusts that are aroused by the spirit of adultery. And lust and coveting. Be careful not to take these verses as literal. Jesus is speaking metaphorically. There's been those in history, I think of Origen, who took these verses seriously. We're not to, you should take it seriously, but we're not to take this literally. Don't take what Jesus is saying. Don't come out of here saying, Pastor Josh and and Jesus himself has said that I should cut off parts of my body in order to not sin. You're not to do that, but you're also not to ignore it. Jesus is using these metaphors, and they are strong ones, and he's doing that to show us that spiritual life, eternity, restoration with God, it's worth even the most costly physical sacrifices. There is nothing, Jesus is saying, there's nothing in this life that is equal in worth to that which is to come in the next. Passages like Romans 8, 13 come to mind. If you're taking notes, that would be a good one to write down, maybe to discuss in life group or your personal time with God this week. It says this, Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to the lusts of the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit of God, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, worth looking at this morning, quickly reading. It would be worth a look later this week in your personal time. Colossians chapter 3, this is what the Word of God says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What does he say? Because of those truths, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says this, on account of those things, the wrath of God is coming. And these things you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. In other words, you must put them all to death. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christian, what are we to do? We're to take sin serious. We're to take it seriously, I should say. We're not to forget that hell is a reality. And that it's for those who are rebelling against God. And we're to run from one and run to the other. We're to set aside all things that would hinder us. All things that would lead us to sin. All things that would lead others to sin. I'm going to bring some comfort to you this morning. As you think about the weightiness of the matter at hand. Remember this, that when this passage is speaking about sin, it's kind of this idea of leading somebody to stumble and with a sense of finality. So ultimately and finally, it's saying to the one who has caused somebody else to ultimately fall away, to finally fall away, this is the warning against you. And similarly, to the one who would hang on to the things of this life that are causing him to sin, some addiction, some secret hidden sin, some overt obvious one, Jesus is saying it's one or the other. And there is a chance that finally, ultimately, that thing that you won't let go of will be the very thing that sends you to hell. There's a sense of finality. And so what are we to do in, the, in between? What are we to do right now, perhaps this morning, and this is heavy, perhaps you, like me, look around at the little ones around you and you say, I failed. You say, I failed. I don't have any more tears this week, but that's my story. Brothers and sisters, I've failed. In many ways, I've failed you, I've failed my family, I've failed those in my past, and I'm sure that I will fail those in my future. And I don't say that in some sense to say, well, it's fine because we all fail. But what are we to do when we see, this is me. I've, I've sinned against the little ones. I've sinned against myself. We're to thank God that he is even revealing that to us. You're to thank God that he's given you the opportunity to hear this this morning. And you're to fall on your knees and seek forgiveness. You're to fall on your knees looking to the cross. Asking that Christ would cleanse you from your sins. So seek forgiveness this morning. Hard shifting here to the end of this passage. The final verses, they're, they're difficult for me to understand. To, for me to understand. That's 
That's not hard for me to admit. It's difficult for me to apply them with 100% certainty, but we're going we're gonna to do what we can. Verse 49 says this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, the Old Testament required that salt be added to, uh, to, to somebody's offering for the Lord. And in a practical sense, the, the presence of salt, because they didn't have refrigerators and things like that, the presence of salt would uh, act as some type of a preservative for their offering. And yet, symbolically, the salt would point to the permanence, to the effectiveness, to the loyalty of the covenant. Fire, on the other hand, it would point to sacrifice and to judgment. So sacrifice in that the fire was how the Lord would receive the offering. But fire also pointed to to God's judgment as in the case of Gehenna, as in the case of hell. And so it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is that either way you look at it, either way you live your life, you will experience fire. You will experience pain. You will be salted. Your life, your experience will be mingled with fire. It will be mingled with loss. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, would you rather have this fire in this life or would you rather have it in the next? You see, the fire of God, either, either, it either consumes, as in Gehenna, or it consummates, as in a sacrifice. It recognizes its worthiness. It either punishes or it prunes. And I believe that both 45 and 47, they kind of back up that interpretation. Look back at verse 47. I want to point something out to you. This is what Jesus says. If your eye causes you to sin, this is the case you find yourselves in. By the way, we all find ourselves in this situation, right? We all find ourselves where our, our eye or some part of us in some sense, metaphorically, is causing us to sin. It's leading us to stumble and leading towards that finality. And this is what Jesus is saying you should do tear it out. He's saying, take action. That's an active verb. It's a command. Tear it out. Active. You, who's doing the action in that scenario? The one who has the eye that's causing him to sin. Active. Jesus says, it's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Notice something about that verb passive. It's passive. What are you, what are you getting at? Here's, here's what I'm saying. Here's what it's saying. I'm pointing out. There's this active and passive action. Either you tear, actively tear your eye out, or you passively be thrown into hell. Either you take action in this life, or God will at the judgment. You're all going to be salted with fire. We'll all walk through suffering We'll all walk through challenges. And Jesus is saying, hey, either you, you, you submit to my law now, you run from sin now, or you face judgment later. Maybe I'm not saying it kindly, but let's think of it this way. Think of Jesus as the great physician. And he's just done a full body exam. You've not been to the doctor in a while, and he's looked you over and taken all these tests and blood and all this stuff, and... He looks at you and he says, hey, you've got a clean bill of health except for one thing. He says, your eye, it's cancerous. And with that bedside, ma- bedside manner that only Jesus can, can, uh, can use and work with, he looks at you, grabs your hand and says, it must be removed at once, right now. 
It's that serious. It's that bad. And he looks at you and he says, I know it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful emotionally. It's going to be, it's going to be painful physically. It's going to be painful mentally. This is going to change your life. It's going to be challenging. And you say to the doctor, you say to Jesus, you say, is there any other way? Are there any other options? And his reply, only one, a painful death. A painful death. In that situation, there are only two options. Either put to death the deeds of the flesh or yourself be put to death. We'll all be salted with fire. John Owen said this so famously, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Christian, that's the call to you. Unbeliever, listening for the first time to this true message as Jesus puts the stethoscope on your heart, he's saying to you as well, remove this thing, run from this thing, put to death the sins of the flesh or you yourself will be put to death. It will kill you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. I wonder if this passage had special meaning to the persecuted church there in Rome, to which were the, who were the recipients of this gospel passage initially. Mark records this. The initial audience was the, the church there in Rome. Under intense persecution, intense struggle, pressed on every side. Struggles within, struggles without. I wonder if they looked at this passage and thought, the purifying fires of persecution, the sin that we have to put to death even amongst our own members and bodies. Maybe they thought after reading this and hearing this, hey, everybody's going to be salted with fire. Everybody's facing struggles. Everybody's got to turn from sin. Everybody's got to put to death the deeds of the flesh while simultaneously struggling through this life and even facing persecution. I wonder if it brought them some sort of comfort. One thing that brings me comfort is the way that the late R.C. Sproul speaks of this passage. This is what he says. By use of these ghastly images, Jesus made it plain that hell is a terrible place. Indeed, it is far better to cut off one's hand, cut off one's foot, or pluck out one's eye than it is to go to that place. There's nothing worse than the abode of the damned. By the same token, of course, there is no place more wonderful, more blessed than the abode of the redeemed, the kingdom of God. Have you ever asked yourself where you will be a hundred years from now? This is so good, so true. You will be somewhere and you will be conscious. In a hundred years, you will be somewhere, and you will be conscious. You will either be among the damned, or in a state where joy never ends, and felicity is never dampened, where your eyes will behold the beautiful vision of the loveliness of Christ forever. If it takes the loss of a hand, a foot, or an eye to make sure that you are there, the trade is worth it many times over. There's a hell to escape. There's a heaven to gain. And there's nothing in this life that's worth losing Christ over. One of the ways that we know the command to cut off limbs is not to be taken literally is by understanding the connection between the human heart 
and the hand. Think of the human hand as fruit. The things that you do, even the mouth, the things that you say, the things that you look at, the way that you look at them, the places you go, all of these things are fruit. And if the hand, the heart, if the hand and the, the feet and the eyes are the fruit, then the heart would be the root. So if, how foolish it would be of us to go up to an apple tree and in an attempt to save this apple tree from being an apple tree, we begin to, to lop off all of the apples, to pluck them off and to throw them away. Maybe you desire to change that apple tree into a plum tree. How successful would you be? Not very successful. At its core, that apple tree would continue, even without the presence of apples, it would continue to be what? It would continue to be an apple tree, and no amount of snipping and pruning could change that. And yet we know as Christians that even in the face of sin, both in the past and in the present, that the fruit in our lives simply serves to show us that we still need a heart to be changed. And the reality for you this morning is that if that's you this morning, if you this morning have seen the seriousness of your sin, you've, you've, you've seen the reality of hell and your possible inclusion in that, and you look at your fruit and say, I, I can't do anything to change it. Simply this, my instructions, my care for you is to call out to God, begging that he would grant you repentance. And I know this about him, that he will. The righteousness of Jesus will wash over you. And the Spirit of God will renew you. I'll leave you with this. Have you been lulled in to in your life and to presuming that the kindness of God, the blessings of God, are his approval of your acts. The times that you've been spared from certain death, from being found out, do you assume that in some way that's God's blessing on you? You're not to do that. Or maybe that he winks at your sin. It would be ill-advised but instead to look at the kindness of God as an opportunity for you to repent. Because though our sins are in the present, we can, be re we can repent of them. There is coming a day where we will not be able to do so. There's coming a, a time when it will be final. And so right now, when you, as you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. Perhaps this will be the last time. Here's the main idea again. There's a way that seems right to man. But beware, the end of that way is certain death. Let's pray. Father, this morning we celebrate that we are able to read and understand the words of Jesus Christ. The word made flesh dwelling among us. And in some sense we able to behold his glory even today Father we thank you for the words of Christ we thank you for this testimony and though it's heavy and though sin is serious and though hell is real we pray that you would help us not to leave this place without hope and in desperation but that we would see our sinfulness and though it be great, we would see the cross of Christ and see that it is greater.
that each and every one of us, from the oldest to the youngest, would be killing sin so that it does not kill us. We take up these tools and we make war with the flesh, empowered by the word of God and by his spirit. We ask that your blessings be upon us this week and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.